The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello there. Welcome to the Phil Hay Show. It's brought to you by The Athletic and the Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan and I'm joined from the Square Ball by Michael Normanton and of course from The Athletic by Phil Hay. You can subscribe to The Athletic to read all Phil's stuff, his articles, everything else on the site at theathletic.com forward slash leads pod pound a month for six months. Twice a week we are now here on the Phil Hay Show. Monday we react to the weekend's game uh, and then Friday we preview the weekend's game. Hell of a week to be doing that, Phil. Uh, yes. We've uh, we've got no games either in the past or in the future. No, um, almost feels like no games ever. Happy new studio, by the way, guys. Uh, how many health and safety breaches were involved in the creation of this? Don't tell people, Phil. Not, none whatsoever, Phil. None whatsoever. Yeah, we've just moved to our new studio. This is the first show we're doing in it. Hopefully everything works. And so in the absence of the games, we're going to do a QA. and a We'll catch up on the latest Leeds news first, though. Um, not a right lot to go at, but we have had Jesse Marsh's... Um, he's in bother for his, his potty mouth. He's in bother, although it has been dealt with and the court has finished. Um, finished and sent him hence. Yes, this was his red card at Brentford... Um, Last game before this month off, he has been fined £10,000 by the FA and also banned from the touchline uh, for one game, which will be Villa at home on October the 2nd, which seems a million miles away, but that will be waiting for him um, a little bit further down the line. He did plead guilty um, to breach of FA Rule E3, and I think the plan had been for him to plead guilty to it before the Forest game, which was obviously called off in the interest of being off the touchline for the Forest game, as opposed to um, Old Trafford and Manchester United away, which would have been this Sunday, but is no longer this Sunday because of the postponement of it um, due to the Queen's funeral. So, yes, um, I think very much what we were expecting that the FA took a dim view of this and have dealt with him accordingly. And we've seen what he actually said now, what it was that got him into trouble. Should we um, should we put it on the podcast? Do you want to say it in full and I'll bleep it out? Just give me some extra yeah, work? Yeah, let's. I, I was just going to check. It is the plan to bleep this. I will. I'll bleep it just because I think bleeps are funnier, really. Yeah, funnier. funnier. Uh, do you want to do it in your impression of Jesse Marsh's accent or are we going to... I tell, I tell you what I'll do. The thing I... It's, it's actually, when, when you get to it, um, if you've got a sense of humour, it's a great quote. And I think um, it's the sort of thing you could stick on the front of a T-shirt or on the side of a mug quite easily. And we were saying off air as well, I also like the fact that the, the sort of tone of the quote or the, the nature of it changes depending on which accent you do it in. So you could quite easily do this in a sort of Begby Scottish style or South London, Millwall, Bermondsey style, and it would be every bit as good. But this was basically the... Um, uh, this was what was sent through by Keith Stroud, who was the fourth official on the day and who advised the match official, Robert Jones, to to send Jesse Marsh off. Um, but anybody who's forgotten, this was the 63rd minute. It was a challenge by Aaron Hickey on Crescenzio Somerville, which Marsh thought was a penalty. I think a lot of us thought was probably a penalty, which the referee didn't give and which VAR didn't bother to check to Marsh's disgust. So as Stroud tells it, and this is laid out in the Football Association's written reasons, which were published when the, the punishment was announced, after 63 minutes play, I advise the referee of the totally unacceptable and inappropriate behaviour of the Leeds United manager, Mr Jesse Marsh, very polite, following an incident in the Brentford penalty area. As the incident happened and there was no decision in favour of Leeds United, Mr Marsh ran out of the technical area and entered the field of play as play was still progressing, jumping and waving his arms erratically. He then came back towards me in an overly aggressive manner, throwing his arms about and shouted, What the fuck was that? It's a f***ing penalty. He's got to f***ing check it. It's a f***ing penalty. He then threatened to go onto the field of play again, using the word in some context, but I'm unable to remember his words at this point. He continued to remonstrate and then left the technical area again to confront AR1, who is the assistant referee that he was uh, he was kind of jostling. Can we have some Begby? Throwing his arms about aggressively, shouting, he's got to check it, he's got to check it. Um, I advise the referee that due to the aggressive nature of the words used and the breach of technical area protocol, 
and a clear and sustained act of unacceptable behaviour, this wanted a red card and dismissal from the technical area. And lo, it came to pass. If Keith Trail thinks that's unacceptable, he should hear some of the stuff we've said about him over the years. Well, you see, I did see someone on um, Twitter speculating that when he said um, he threatened to go onto the field to play again using the <laughs> word in some context, but I'm unable to remember his words at this point. <laughs> I did wonder whether or not Marsh had been following any of Moscow's uh, coverage of Keith Stroud over the years. Mm. I mean, he was right, though. He should have been checked. Is that is that taken into consideration at all in this? Because it was a penalty and it, and it should definitely have been looked at. Um, no, there's no um, there's no reference in there to whether or not it was the wrong decision. Um, and it won't surprise you at all that the FA don't want to commit themselves on that front. Um, the, what did jump out in this is that if you go a little bit further down in the written reasons, there's a comment from what's called the match delegate. The, the FA or um, the, the PGMOL will have usually ex-players, um, ex-managers at certain games where they study the performance of the referee, they give a, an overview from their perspective of, of the job that they have or, or used to have. And the match delegate actually said, well, the ensuing behaviour wasn't perfect. Um, in the context of the game, I wonder if a caution and reprimand would have been sufficient. Again, whilst not condoning the behaviour, um, we do see head coaches remonstrating with officials without such punishment. So the match delegate's view was that actually what Marsh was doing was not so unlike quite a lot of what you see on the touchline week to week and, and game to game. I think if we're being fair, it probably went quite a long way beyond what you generally see um, in, in on the touchline or in the technical areas. But that was the match delegate's view. Uh, the FA's disciplinary panel dismissed that out of hand and just said, we do not share this. And also, it's worth saying that Marsh did plead guilty to the charge. He did accept um, that his behaviour was wrong. He didn't dispute that it, was, um, that it wasn't worth being dismissed for. And it does mention in the written reasons that he's been spoken to um, by Leeds about his conduct. And I do think you'll see now a bit of a toning down of, of his behaviour. That deals with that then, Phil? He'll, he'll never do it again now. I feel absolutely confident. <laughs> we'll, he, he will not say another word to a fourth official. It might be difficult to get totally out of the mindset that he's in of wanting to, to challenge them um, and to, to argue the toss over decisions. But I think, yeah, I think the penny will have dropped after that, that it's only only going to end one way and, and he'll know fine well that the officials and the authorities and the FA and everybody else will, will rapidly close ranks if this goes on too much. Friday morning as we record the 21s at Allen Road this weekend. It's tonight, isn't it? It is um, against Southampton. Leeds are obviously going to have to be a little bit creative with the training schedule and, and the plans for the next few weeks because it is fully 29 games between the last match away at Brentford and the next one at home to Villa um, on October the 2nd, which is a, a really long stretch that they didn't want. 29 days rather than 29 games, but the point stands. Sorry, 29 yeah. days, yes. Um, really long stretch that they didn't want. Um, really long stretch which, has become, which is coming before another big gap in the season, and um, which is the World Cup. Which also nobody wants. Well, nobody wanted at that time. And funnily enough, to everybody's surprise, um, already problems with the fixture list. Uh, I, I don't think either of these postponed games, Nottingham Forest or Manchester United, will take place before the World Cup. I think they'll have to get fitted in at some point um, after Christmas and after the turn of the year. But the problem is you've got the League Cup filling up midweek. You've got Manchester United in the Europa League, um, which will fill up um, midweek for as long as they're in it. There won't actually be that many... There are plenty of um, free midweek dates where Leeds are concerned. That's not too much of a problem, but it's fitting around the schedule of other clubs, which is going to be the challenge. So surprisingly enough, a World Cup bombed in the middle of the season might cause a few problems. Should we get Man United just to forfeit that then? Three points, default 3-0 victory. Well, perhaps they'll choose to do that themselves. Perhaps the Europa League now, they've they've won it and got it on the record a couple of years ago, won't, um, won't appeal to them too much. 
but yeah, it, it, it's the, the 21s game. There'll be um, a good number of first-team players involved in that. Patrick Bamford, Liam Cooper, two of them who could both do with minutes. And I think both will be lined up, I'm sure, by Marsh to play um, in the Villa game. I, I strongly suspect Cooper will come into the defence in place of Llorente, although we'll need to ask Marsh about that next time we see him. And also expecting a first glance of Wilfred Nonto, the striker who came in from FC Zurich um, on deadline day. I think you'll probably find over the next couple of weeks that Leeds will try and do behind closed doors games from time to time if they can, just to maintain a little bit of match sharpness. Because they can train and they can, you know, they can push the schedule, they can increase the intensity of what they're doing at Thorpe Arch. Um, but a month without a game at this point, particularly while other clubs are playing, is not ideal. Into the Q&A then, Phil. We will start with questions as well. Loads of people sent this one, actually. Um, thanks to Dukes, Carl Gould as well, asking about Harrison for England. Carl in particular saying, no Harrison for England, seriously? What has he got to do? I don't think he could have done a huge amount more than he has in the early weeks of this season. And I'm, I'm a little bit surprised without being totally shocked, just because Southgate has to pretty much play his cards at this point. It's last chance to look at the squad, look at the players before they go to the World Cup. Um, Tony from Brentford has obviously had a call-up, which I think is is definitely deserved, although kind of reserved judgment on whether I expect him to be in the final squad. It wouldn't surprise me at all if Southgate, as he kind of does, reverts to Rashford, uh, Rashford when it comes round to picking who's actually going to Qatar. But they have had an eye on Harrison for such a long time. And I think there was a feeling at Leeds or a hope at Leeds that it might be that he'd get a chance in these games, just a kind of last-ditch effort to put his name in the frame for the World Cup. It hasn't happened, and I think on the basis that he's played, or at least his numbers have been really good in the early part of the season, it seems safe to assume that it, that is probably not going to change before the World Cup takes place. And, and given that Bamford isn't involved either, uh, I think we can safely assume that, that that boat is probably sailed for him. Dukes has asked if there's a chance he can play for the US, but he wasn't there long enough, was he, for that? I would have to look into whether or not he actually qualifies. He was in the States for a long time. He moved over there um, when he was around about 13, 14 to go to college um, and to, to play football at, at um, kind of high school, college level over there. And then obviously went into MLS um, with New York City before moving over to Manchester City and then on to Leeds. He has been, he, he would, I think, to most people's mind, be an England player um, and want to play for England. Whether or not he actually qualifies for the States, I, I really don't know. And, and if there's no opportunity with England, you've seen before players look elsewhere, try to find international football with other nations. But in terms of the qualification criteria, it's pretty complicated and I'd have to dig that out properly. I mean, technically, wasn't it like an extended holiday that he went on over to the States? Could you maybe put yourself forward as eligible for any nation that you visited on holiday? Well, I went on honeymoon to Bali and I sort of think I might have the talent to get in the Bali national team. So if that's how it works, then yeah, bring it on. Happy to represent them. I remember Paul Butler getting an island cap because he married an Irish woman. I think he somehow managed to get citizenship off the back of that and then he played one game and then he realised he was terrible. And divorced her now. <laughs> I hope it was for more than that Irish cap that he married her and he's, he's still with her, I hope. I think she married him for his, his lovely haircut. Now, he didn't just say to her, there's a chance that if we marry, I could get to go to the World Cup at some point or... <laughs> Or the Euros. I mean, you do see a lot of um, a lot of players who are born in England who have Caribbean roots or African roots and play for for countries elsewhere. I think though Harrison would have been quietly hopeful himself that he might have had a look in from uh, from Southgate. Southgate's kind of made it clear on the quiet that he does like Harrison a lot and has watched him a lot. But a little bit like Bamford, you need to be more involved. I think at this stage to have any chance of travelling. And as I say, with with Ivan Tony, I think he's earned that place in the squad. But I. I don't think I'd be putting my mortgage on that translating into him getting a seat on the plane. It all feels very sort of friend zone does this, doesn't it? Like, yeah, I'm, I'm very fond of you. I'm very fond of you, but 
I've got my favourites. Yeah. Yeah. Talking of America then, what can we take from US sports, asks Jonathan Brooke, that would improve the Premier League and who wins the the North versus South Premier League All-Star game that was proposed by uh, Chelsea owner Todd Bowley? It's a terrible idea, by the way, says Brookie. Yes, um, it is a terrible idea, which definitely wouldn't work. Where are we drawing the line in England? Where is the where is the north? Where is the south? It goes from Bristol across to sort of where we're saying are you, are you Link, to, Lincoln. Are you trying to split the Premier League in half, though? So you have to just make sure you get you know like when ten you see, teams in each. When you see kind of regional football at lower levels, and you end up with like Oxford in a northern league because they're they're the most northern of that batch and they need to make the, the divisions equal size it also struck me that if you're doing an all-star team it's going to be pretty much Manchester City for the north isn't it and they win because they've got Haaland up front um, <laughs> so you know although I, I suppose you'd introduce criteria saying you've got to have someone from every club I was going to say it takes me back to the Great Britain football team for the 2012 Olympics when they had so much, so many fallings out over trying to put that together well go on then who are we picking from Leeds who's getting in the all-star team I'm going Millie Sinistera I think one of the American lads would get in it you think so? Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's, I guess it's for a TV event, isn't it? So, yeah. do you think they would shoehorn in Addison to make sure that the Americans watched? I, I think he'd waltz straight in there. It would there'd be no shoehorning about it. No, no problem at all. Yeah, yeah, laughing. I, I'd go. I'd go Millie. The North definitely win. I think there's no no doubt about mm. that. Um, the South will disagree, but it's never going to happen. So we'll we'll never know. I think the one thing that they probably do far better in the states than they do over here is your access to televised games. That it is much easier from what I gather about it, I haven't been to the States, but from what I read and what I'm told, it's much easier to access the individual games that you want to watch without having to subscribe, you know, long term to a certain channel which doesn't have all the fixtures and without therefore having to subscribe to about four or five different providers. I do think you do have to, I was chatting to a friend in the States about this and there are at least sort of three, I think you've got to, if you want to watch it all, there's at least three you've got to watch. Okay. Uh, it seems to me though, from what I've read, it's far more accessible over there and it is easier to do. Um, I think that's still that's probably going to be the big challenge um, in a broadcast sense for the Premier League further down the line is how they how going forward they manage to kind of accommodate this massive appetite for watching football all the time how they make it easier to access how they potentially make it cheaper to access as well but I can't say in all honesty I look at American sport and I think that there are things that I would be dragging out of that to apply to English football and certainly not the absence of relegation and promotion I mean I think Far worse than I mean, it, it seemed to me that um, Todd Bowley, the Chelsea owner, was just kind of you know shooting from the lip about ideas, and I don't think he was sort of saying any of this stuff needs to come in instantly. I think it was just what was in his head coming out. But far worse than the the All Star North South game, I thought was the idea of relegation playoffs at the bottom of the Premier League because there is easily enough jeopardy involved in the bottom of the Premier League anyway. Would you advocate for a bit more on field violence being tol- or tolerated? Do you mean ice hockey style? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you're allowed a bit, a bit of, a bit of afters properly. Let's have drinking in stands again. Yeah, that's a daft, childish rule that we have here that you can't be trusted to have. Whereas you can in a lot of other sports. Yeah, yeah like pretty much everything, every, every other country and every other sport, you can do that. But for some reason in England, you're not even so like you're not allowed to look at a football pitch while you have a pint in your hand, which has yeah. always feel, felt like a weird rule. Yeah, I went, I went to Bayern Munich on a on a lads trip to well, and to claim our European um, cup back from 1975. They didn't give it to me, but that's a a different story. But the whole middle tier there where you would have executive boxes in an English ground. It was all just open under the stands and you could do a full lap of the stadium. But I realised I was watching the game with a pint of beer in my hand when I was stood there. I was like, oh, this is novel. And you realise the treat is like kids, don't they? Mm. Ice hockey's quite something really. It's probably one of the few sports, there are plenty of sports where I don't really know the rules or know the, you know, the, the kind of nuance or the depth of, of how 
the game's done. I mean, for example, I, I went to watch my eldest play hockey for the first time yesterday and um, pretty much stood there going, what's going on here for the whole the whole of it? Aside from the, the um, kind of basic point of trying to smack the ball into the onion bag, um, the rest, some of the other aspects of it were a bit of a mystery. But ice hockey, the sort of willingness and, and um, <laughs> the willingness to tolerate massive punch-ups and then bomb you into the bin for five minutes and then you back out and and you carry on given that Marsh has got a 10 grand fine and a, a one game touchline ban for um for a few things um it seems to be a bit out of kilter yeah it's, it's almost you can imagine people in the states looking at this and thinking he got he got banned for that really <laughs> uh right then on to a more football related question rather than violence um Marsh can add one of peak Viduka Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank Beckford or Yeboah to his squad who does he choose asks Rico Helly I think you would, I was going to say you would always add Peak Viduka, wouldn't you? But then I think about Peak Yeboah and I feel like I've never seen another striker quite like Peak Yeboah, which isn't to say that there was never a Peak striker who was better than Yeboah. There was just nobody quite like him doing what, what he did. But I think on the evidence of what they both did at Leeds, you'd go Viduka. Peak Yeboah, the thing was, it was such a small window, but what a time. Yeah. He was he was unbelievable. He was a bit, it, a very different player, but... A little bit like Haaland now, you just expect him to do something really good every single game, yeah. and he normally would. And he scored loads of different types of goals as well. People always remember the ones that he kind of smacked it off the crossbar, but there's like little dinked finishes, there's headers, absolutely everything he did. Both was, feet. Yeah, absolutely, both feet. And also, it, you're saying, that, you know, remember the ones that smacked in off the bar, there are others that were properly smacked in. It's just that once you start doing a compilation of them, it goes on forever, and it's it's incredible. I mean, I should write about this, really, but I often wondered with you, boy, you'd absolutely write about the, the small window, how good do people who knew him back then and people who watched him, you know, how good do they think he should have been? Because he looks like he should have been the best striker going. He, he basically was one of the best strikers in the world. I and mean, It's so funny that he was he was a top scorer in the German league, but no one really had any idea about him. Whereas yeah. you look at the global coverage now. It was funny though, going back to, we spoke to Alan Sutton, didn't we? Former Leeds United physio over on the Square Ball podcast. Um, and he was telling us that just had, he had no interest in doing like the pre-season running and training, did he? He got injured once in pre-season, so therefore he was like, I'm not doing that. Yeah, like I'll, the, the, I'll do it on the day. Yeah, he was saying they used to do like runs along the disused railway line over towards Harrogate or whatever, you know, from the training ground at Thorpe Arch. There's one that runs right past the training ground. So it's perfect for a long distance run out and then you can come back. He said Yeboah just used to stroll in at his own pace, but send him out there on a Saturday and he was unreal. That explains everything. Yeah, I often wondered why it was that it, he didn't sort of catapult from the Liverpool goal and the, the Wimbledon goal and, and that finish at West Ham and, and goals in Europe and everything else to Real Madrid. Um, just kind of quietly went back to, to Germany. Bit of a wasted talent in the end, I think, with him. So I think on that basis, I would be tempted to go for Viduka. I think you would get more out of Viduka longer term. I would like to see both um, Hasselbank, who used to play off the shoulder a lot, and Beckford, same sort of story, in this side though, because of the style of football, like going through the middle and playing off the shoulder of the of the striker. And also... Oh, of the defender, sorry. And also, I mean, the, the way that Marsh wants them to play... Uh, the, the vertical passing, the quick in the play, the, the kind of direct approach. You are looking for finishers. You know, you're looking for people at the end of it who will, who will tuck it away. Beckford was very, very good at that. Hasselbank was that was absolutely immense. And I know it was all it all got a bit poisonous and and a bit ugly um, at the point where he left. But he was a fantastic player for Leeds. But I'm still I'm still going Viduka. Um, we've had far too long without violent questions now. So let's return to this one then, Phil. The, the, there were a lot of questions about <laughs> violence in here, which. Worries me. I, I don't know if it's me or them. Just the times the times that we're in, I think. Isn't it? Um, Nathan Adams wants to know who would win in a fight, you or Graham Smith, our new dad? I think I'd be quite 
He's got he's got the Belfast streak in him, which we give him a good chance. Um, Bagger up in Pennycoop, which was really rough and ready. You know, um, kind of, you know, it wasn't George Watson's Edinburgh, put it that way. And it's, Rain- um, it's so Rangers versus Hearts as is, well. No, yeah. no love lost there. It is, and I suppose if you look historically, that fixture tends to only go one way. So get your money on Graham. <laughs> and also, you've, you've had a, you've had a, your head split open. Yeah, but that might be is an it, advantage. Is that, is that going is to be it, a risk? Yeah, pain threshold might be higher. <laughs> I mean, if it don't, we don't want your brain spilling out doing <laughs> mid-fight. What sort of tactics would you employ? That's the question. I think it'd be a bit of a, would you be a, bit of a street fight, that, yeah. wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I often say to Graham, it's become quite clear that when he leaves the Evening Post, the, the recruitment criteria will be, must be bald. <laughs> seems, seems to be what they're going for down there, which I'm all for. You'll, you'll have to just fight the winner of Graham versus Stan Collymore. <laughs> Thoughts on doing bookfast shots every time Bielsa's name's mentioned on the podcast, asks Paul Giles. Phil. Michael's taking a big sip of water. Why don't you ask him about the thought of Buckfast shots today? <laughs> not, <laughs> not today. Why are you a little bit cro- croaky, Michael? <laughs> I was, I was uh, leaving too. Right. And I'm struggling a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> what is Buckfast? For anybody who doesn't know what Buckfast is, it's a, is it a fortified wine or something? It is. It was produced by monks down south and on that basis became very popular amongst um, Scottish teenagers, right. as it would. It's rather cheap, put yeah. it that way. Yeah, easily accessible. What um, strength is it? Um, off the top of my head, I think it's about... 12 to 15%, something like that. I once went to a leaving do when I walked at Dixon's in Edinburgh. They did this thing where they mixed Buckfast, bottle of Buckfast with a couple of pints of milk and it made it like chocolate milkshake, um, which sent you absolutely bonkers. So that was a fun night out. Um, Buckfast tonic's a tonic wine. Buckfast tonic wine is a caffeinated... It's caffeinated. Mm, even uh, better. Buckfast tonic wine is a caffeinated alcoholic drink consisting of pure caffeine added to fortified wine. That's what it is. Originally made by monks at Buckfast Abbey Inn, etc. And this is off, um, off Wikipedia. It's 15%. There we go. Yeah. That's quite strong. Solid. Yeah. But yeah, we, we've not even mentioned the main man yet, have we? So we're all safe. I, I tell you what, though, I'm recommending that maybe it's the Christmas, edi- uh, Christmas edition. We should all have a good drink at Buckfast before we come on here. I do worry or the, about... Or the New, Year, New Year's Eve one, I, like last time, was, was the Tenant's Super Strength. I was going to say, I worry about you sometimes, Phil, because you brought in that Tenant's Super Strength, which remained undrunk. It actually went out of date. No, 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 it didn't. It didn't. Some of it got drunk. I had some. Yeah, I, drank it, I drank it out of a champagne glass. There you go, <laughs> um, on, that, on this note, uh, Brendan Panicker says, Phil, my wife and I are going to our first match at Ellen Road when we travel over from Canada for the Fulham game. Let me know the best things to do on a match day, including all the local watering holes. Thanks. Well, I would definitely suggest that you do the mural tour around Leeds, which actually I'm I'm going to go do myself um, in the next week or so with a bit of time off. I haven't ever been around all of them in, in one bash and, and would like to do it. In terms of watering holes, probably ask, better asking other people than me. I can't say I turn up to the football half cut too often, or not these days anyway. Um, well, if you can do it properly, I guess you've got to do... Is what is the Scarborough Taps? Is it still Scarborough Taps or is it now Head of Steam? No, Scarborough... Yeah, Head so. of Steam's what used to be Spencer's. Next door to it, so... Yeah, so you want Scarborough Taps near the station for the authentic experience and then the Peacock, obviously. Yeah. Well, if you look on the, um, the supporters, Leeds United Supporters Trust website, they've done a big mural map for the city and alongside each of the murals, they recommend a pub that's nearby that you can drop in for a pint and there's 19 in total. So if you can get round there and then get to Ellen Road for kickoff, good on you. John- let, let us know how you get on. <laughs> Jordan Robinson is asking, Phil, who's the nicest man you've met in football? And then the supplementary question is, if you want to tell us who the biggest helmet is as well, then feel free. Helmet, there's a good word. I couldn't go, couldn't go far off Eddie Gray, really. Oh, Love we're going for nice man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Thank, <laughs> thank God, Phil. <laughs> thank you for clarifying that. I thought yes. you were about to get cancelled yeah. fully then. Cancelled and killed in the street, yes, 100%. Um, no, he's a, he's a smashing bloke, is, is Eddie. Um, Matt Smith, actually, big Matt Smith. Lovely guy as well. Really, really clever bloke who 
uh, last time I spoke to him was saying that he's still playing, obviously, but he's quite keen to, um, rather than become a coach or manager, wants to become chief exec of a club or work at, at some sort of executive level. So done done a lot of business degrees and is just really, you know, really nice salt of the earth guy. Biggest helmet? Um, I don't think, I, just for legal reasons, wouldn't describe him as a helmet. That was somebody else's word. Um, but there were certainly ample occasions when Dennis Wise and I could have ended up in the car park, I think, yeah. And who would have won that one? And probably him. Let's be honest, yeah, <laughs> to the death. I'm just talking about slang like helmet and stuff. Uh, yeah. R- Roland Butternobs asks, can you do a primer on British slang, especially the insults uh, for international fans such as knob, can't say that word, bellend, knackered, etc. I sort of understand them from context, but a full explanation would be great. Also, any tips on understanding the Scottish commentators? Um, no, not really. Um, I, best tip on that is probably move to Scotland for about 10 years and slowly take it on board. But um, Feels no, like a, a big step to take. Scottish, Scottish slang is a totally different thing altogether. Yeah. It's like learning Latin, I think, as opposed to just um, picking up a bit of French. Knackered means that you're rather tired. Um, so if you go for a 10-mile run, you might say you're knackered at the end of it. Knobhead would translate, I imagine... Dickhead would probably. I mean, um, any of in, these in America, slang, yeah, slang for penis is yes. is about the, the size of it. Yes, um, for a lot of them, so just, it's just general insults around people being penises. I mean, for example, you might come to England and hear somebody described as a knobhead. You might um, go to Scotland and hear somebody described as a ball bag, and it is essentially <laughs> the same thing. <laughs> However, I would suggest that one is probably easier to work out yourself than the other. Try and think of American ones that we don't we don't really say douchebag over here, do we? No, no, that's not the done thing. I was uh, thinking, I was thinking, American slang is pretty polite. Really, you know, they well, sell people without being yeah. We, offensive. We've been saying this that like a lot of British swear words. I'm thinking the the very strongest ones we use also as terms of affection as well as insults. It's it's very difficult to yeah to, certainly, to see where the boundaries yeah where the yeah, boundaries 100%. lie. I mean, I, I sort of feel like one of Scotland's claim to fame is that it probably generated most of the swear words that exist, or certainly <laughs> the, the the most extreme ones that exist in the world today. Which it seems like an advert for independence, really, doesn't it? Let's not go there. Let's not go there. Um, has Marcelo Bielsa agreed to having Thorpe Arch named after him? As I don't think that's a given. Says, Ooh, get the book fast out. Fast shot. Mm. They are still waiting for a reply. They've written to him um, to tell him that they want to do that, to ask if they can have his permission, because I think they feel like they definitely need his permission before they, they do it. Bielsa always used to say, you know, if people ever talked about permanent tributes to him or anything else, he would always give the impression that he just did not want to see that, that he didn't think he'd earned it and you know, whatever anybody else thought. So yes, uh, they need a reply from him with the thumbs up, I think, before they'll do that. To return to the previous theme, uh, Hank Massachusetts the third asks, if you are banned from... That's the- a good name. Yeah. I don't know if it's the real one, we'll see. Um, uh, you are banned from the press box slash corporate area after a Buckfast fueled rampage. Buckfast? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Uh, you can choose one ticket to go sit anywhere else in the ground. Where do you go? Which which would you like to get? When you, If you want to go get amongst it. If it had been a, a um, afternoon of Buckfast and milk turning into chocolate milkshake, I would definitely go in the South Stand, yeah, 100%, and be welcomed with open arms if I'd consume some of that, I think. Uh, but where else would you go? If you wanted to have it a bit more civil, let's say. Uh, the West Stand always strikes me as pretty civil. Yeah, the guys who sit around me um, and ladies um, are always very polite, always come up for a chat. I think we'll miss it when it's gone, even though it's an absolute relic now. I had Someone asked me uh, this week at The Athletic just to write a little bit about your background of covering Leeds and I was saying somebody once said I think it was Rory Smith at the, uh, the New York Times once said I'd covered Leeds United for longer than was healthy um, which I think is about the best way of, of putting it but I was saying in this piece I'm a bit like the West Stand I've got bits dropping off me and <laughs> been there for ages and in, desperately in need of a refurb but yeah I say this all the time about Ellen Road on the one hand it'll be lovely when the place is massively redeveloped and everything else but on the other hand you'll badly badly miss the way it is now 
Is there anywhere, Michael, you've not been inside the stadium? Have you been in every stand? I've not been in all the corners. I've been in all. I've been in all the main stands. I've not been northwest or cheese wedge. I've been everywhere else. Oh, not been the yeah. cheese wedge. No, never, never. It used to, well, it used to be away fans when I first started going, and then moved from family stand to cop. And I've, I've always had season tickets, family stand or cop. I know, I've been in. I've been in other stands for you know odd games. I've only there. been in East Upper once, and that was for the Millwall playoff semi final home leg. You know the the Becchio goal, mm-hmm. and that shook. You could, you really, really got the sense that the the budget for that stand was five and a half million quid in 1992 when that goal went in. That was the one. That was the one. I did sit in the cheese wedge once, um, randomly on the night when Boyer and Woodgate had to watch from the gantry against Everton. Um, friends of mine, or one friend of mine, was an Everton fan and said, "Do you want to come into the away?" And so we did. And that entire evening was just the crowd chanting for Boyer and Woodgate all the way through. It was when Leeds were disciplining them um, over um, what went on on. On in the the city centre story, we don't need to get back into. Um, but it was a particularly weird night as well because at the time, Everton were having issues with racism in their crowd and and particularly the away crowd. I think so. When we got to the cheese wedge, there were people handing out flyers saying there'll be undercover police in their way in tonight, looking for anybody who's um, who's shouting racist abuse. And I was sat there thinking. This is the first time I've ever been with Everton's away crowd. And if somebody's looking around to see people they don't recognise, they'll be looking straight at me thinking, who's this? And, and, then, you, and then you speak. And yeah, like, well, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't sound too scouse him. But yeah, anyway, we got out of there alive. Some of those glasses with a false nose and a moustache on. Yeah. <laughs> Trying not to stand out. Right then, um, favourite of the new signings wants to know, uh, Deki Rosas. I think it's going to be Sinistera. Could be Desi, by the way. Um, I think it's going to be Sinistera, but for now it's been Aronson. Although I like Rocker as well. Do you I like Rocker? See, I really like Tyler Adams. Oh, fair enough. So what you're saying is all of them. All of them. Yeah. <laughs> all, of, all of the above. But no, I'm going for Adamson at this stage. On a more serious football note, then Adam wants to know, Jackie Harrison, Robin Cock, Pascal Strout, among others uh, who have two years or less on the current deals. What's the plan, Phil? Uh, less so the old guards such as Dallas Cooper and Ailing, who are into their 30s, but of the younger assets with resale value that we have, what of them? I thought he was listing the most handsome. Yes. Well, that as well. That initial list. That as well. Um, they'll, they'll want to keep all of them. I was expecting, I'm not sure it's happened yet, but I was expecting them to get into contract talks with Harrison as soon as the window closed. That's quite often what you see when there's interest in a player, you wait until the window's done, then after that you start speaking to them. Um, they are going to have to extend his deal, otherwise they're going to be in a situation at the end of this season where he's got 12 months left and in no way could they be asking for 40 million from anybody for him or 40 million plus as they were um, with Newcastle. I noticed that Robin Cock had been left out of the Germany squad, which I think will come as a bit of a surprise to him because he's probably playing, albeit we had the game at Brentford, which defensively was not great, although I don't know how much of that you'd really pin to him. But I think he's probably played as well in this period as he has at any stage at Leeds. And, and his fitness and his body also seem to have held up better. I think Marsh had said that in his view, he'd been Leeds' best player so far. So it's almost that kind of irony that at the point where he has got into a bit of a flow and there's got some rhythm at last which we all hoped he would do um, he's not been called up by the Germans which obviously casts a bit of doubt over um, his um, his chances of going to the World Cup but strike again they, they will want to keep strike without a doubt um, On serious squad matters Ben asks if you had to leave one of the current lead squad along with Mrs Hay for 24 hours if you had to who would it be and why? The safest answer to that is probably Archie Gray, I think, isn't it? Yeah, he can just sit and get on, sit and get on with his schoolwork. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, good lad, and can also feed a tortoise when it's needed. What's the unsafest answer to that, Phil? <laughs> probably, it's probably Diego Rente. Come on, when the house is on fire. <laughs> I better not answer that.
Jared wants to know your favourite away day with Leeds. I, it, it's funny this because I hated going here on on the basis that Leeds always lost. There was always a detour off the A1 on the way home, which was usually through Melton Mowbray. So you ended up getting home about midnight. But it was it was Millwall because in the Championship it could be kind of be quite bland game to game, and that was actually that was the amazing thing about he who would make us drink buck fast was that suddenly every game became an event and every game was properly engaging and, and it was just never ever dull because of his football but with Millwall there was always that kind of you know risk element of going down there there was always that there was there was an atmosphere basically at Millwall every time you went the problem was that Leeds just never ever showed up with a few exceptions I think I've seen Leeds win twice down there um, but I always had it second on the list of clubs of stadiums behind the name park where if you went down there as a journalist and took liberties you were most likely to get a get a kick in although I have to say I did I got recognised once there and there's no reason why anybody down there would recognise me but once social media got going and Twitter in particular I sort of rather rashly sat at the very end of the bench next to the crowd and the guy who sat down right next to me on the opposite side of the bars said to me are you Phil Hay? And I, I said something. Me, mate. <laughs> I, I said something ridiculous, like potentially, what, you know, what, what, whatever that means. But he was, he was a nice guy, and he's sort of chatting on through the game. And then it was the hockey day match, the start of hockey day's only season, where they lost two 0 and were kind of typically abject as Leeds tended to be down at, at the den. So at the end of the game, this guy says to me, um, "I was nice chatting on to you." I says, "Ah, yeah, 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 you know, you too." And then just as a parting shot with. with a sort of unexpected tone of pity. He says to me, "Fucking hell, leads a shit." <laughs> I was like, yes, thank you. There goes the beep. There goes the beep again. So I said, um, "That'll make my intro for the match report when, when I get home." But I think even he was kind of shocked by um, by what he'd seen. Um, but it was always just a bit on edge, Millwall. And I think in the Championship there wasn't necessarily enough of that. I've always wondered this. Why do you think certain grounds are just like a hex on clubs for a time? It's weird, isn't it? Like we never got anything from Millwall. And I think back to Oldham in like the 80s. We never won anything at Oldham. It was always always miserable. But then there was that Ian Westlake goal. Um, That's right. Back on well, the 95th minute, wherever it was, yeah. when we won there eventually. A beauty but, of a finish that was as well. It just it's, some some bogey sides. It just, some, why is it? Some grounds, you can't explain it. You know, like Brentford, for example, just could never win at Brentford. And Brentford were a But we didn't play them for 50 years. That's, no, no, that's, that's <laughs> true. But Brentford are a good team and, and everything else. I think... The slight difference with Millwall is that you couldn't go there and not feel that that was a game that everybody, everybody got into. Everybody got into. The crowd got into. The players got into. I think when, particularly when they had Neil Harris as manager, they just always seemed so motivated for Leeds coming down to to Bermondsey. And quite honestly, so often just play better than Leeds, tactically better, stronger on the day. It did fall into that cliche of looked like they wanted it. And I don't think... Leeds were necessarily able to motivate themselves for the fixture in the same way because it it just didn't work you know, identically in reverse. So yeah, I think, whereas with some grounds, you do find yourself thinking, why is it we can never win here? I think with Millwall, it was perfectly, perfectly obvious why it was that Millwall got the better of that so often and, and why it wasn't too often the same when they came to Ellen Road. Returning to the theme of away days, what's the longest... Rather than violence. Yes, what is the longest journey to and from uh, a game Covering Leeds as a journalist asks Matt in Exeter. Um, Norwich last season was not great. I think I left at about six in the morning and got back about midnight um, for a game that finished at four o'clock. There were engineering works somewhere round about Peterborough. 
and there was just every single train on that Sunday seemed to be cancelled. So yeah, a bunch of us, me and a load of Leeds fans, tipped into York at about anyway, quarter past twelve in the end. I mean, that's not that bad. It, it could be worse. But I've had um, games at Fulham where I've uh, Tuesday night games where I've got home at quarter past four in the morning. And they got to take the kids to school at seven o'clock. <laughs> like the Walking Dead through the through the playground. I had a very long day at Southampton once, waiting for a, a friend of mine to be released from the police cells. <laughs> he'd, got, <laughs> he'd got a little bit too drunk trying to enter, tried to enter a football ground, which is illegal, we should say. Which, yeah. which is why he was um, he was taken to the to the cells. Correctly, so, <laughs> so yeah, that was. Um, I don't think they let him out until about. They did let him out that day. In fairness, it could have been worse. They could have kept him in overnight, and then we'd have gone well. We'll see you back in Leeds then. I mean, uh, I think I got back later from Norwich than I did that time, the 2007 pre-season when we drove from uh, Dresden to Liberich in the Czech Republic. And I think that was quicker. My most miserable, and I think this probably factors into the length of time it took to get back, was the train back from Cardiff after the Watford playoff final. Because mm. it didn't leave for a good sort of hour, two hours after the game had finished. It was a special train that had been put on. And I, th- I think it was actually, I seem to recall being told at the time that it was um, the, the whole thing had been organised, the train had been booked by a Man United tour operator, we found out afterwards. Uh, Not which, Richard Arlison, no? No, no. Well, we know this one actually turned up. Um, <laughs> but the train back from Cardiff, it was about five hours. So about a seven hour journey back all, all in and we'd lost. It was like, it was quite vibrant going down. There was a lot of early morning drinking and all that kind of stuff went on and, and then it was just silence all the I, way I back. did one of the, speaking of Cardiff, the, one of the bubble games there, that was a miserable experience as well. It was like seven hours on a bus, lose the game, seven hours on a bus. It's always longer Great when you out. get beat. It's like I say, I always, I remember tweeting saying nothing says defeat at Millwall like a detour through Milton Mowbray <laughs> every time. That sweet, sweet head of yours, Phil. Wet shave or electric, asks Ed? Electric. I can, I can hardly muster the effort to shave my face. <laughs> Love my head. I was chatting to Michael about this beforehand and he was reckoning electric as well. Mm. Have you got I, Have you got your Manscaped freebies, by the way? Do we need to know about that? I never or? got any freebies from Manscaped, no. 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 So no, you don't need to get to that one. <laughs> Jambonito asks, this is an interesting uh, thought exercise, where would Leeds have finished last season with a fully fit Bamford and who would be in charge now? I think they'd have finished a good way higher than 17th. I think they'd have been 14th, 13th, something like that. We've said loads of times on this podcast that it wouldn't have needed that many results to have turned one way or the other. I wouldn't have needed that many points added to the board um, for the league position to have been considerably better. Who would have been in charge right now? I suppose possibly Bielsa, but it did feel last season as if that was coming to an end. So very, very hard to say. Uh, we were looking at a question beforehand and Michael's answer to it was Jesse Marsh. Yeah. And I totally understand where he's coming from with that. It might well have been that there'd have been a partner ways regardless. I was going to say with the massive aid of hindsight there we can answer that question and say with a large degree of confidence Jesse Marsh because you spoke to Radrazani didn't you you and uh, David Ornstein yeah. and he as good as said that so yeah. do you agree I, with that I, I think the, the thing that might have changed that was that if it had been another really sensational season last season and Bielsa had been wanting to stick around it would have been hard to have justified saying no let's have a change you know if you feel like you've got the impetus with you if you feel like everything's making progress then it seems ridiculous to pull the rug out from under that but I think there was a lot to suggest that it might, it, even had Bamford been fit, even if the league position had been better, um, it might well have been somebody else regardless. It would have been quite a hard sell though, had Bielsa continued to ride that wave, even if it had been a 14th place finish down from 9th. Still looks really, really rock solid, doesn't it, versus what, what happened. There's no way you could have made a case for a change under those circumstances, could you really? It would have been really hard. I think it might have depended a little on what Bielsa himself wanted to do, but I never really got the, the sense... I've seen, you know, there was that period to begin with where you kind of thought 
he could be gone at any moment and you know perhaps he'll be here for one year perhaps he'll be here for two years most and then that'll be him because that's what he normally did elsewhere as time went on he less and less got the sense of him wanting to give it all up and to walk away from it but um, that falls into the hypothetical category and if there was one thing Bielsa hated it was hypotheticals With regards to Marsh Lowfield's Seats asks do you think the USA soccer job could uh, come up soon and Marsh could be on his way if so where would Leeds look next? Where would they look next? Blame me. Um, we wouldn't even know where to start with that one, really. It's uh, <laughs> like six months into into the job. And it's been, it's been um, so stressful getting to this point as well. Yeah. That you kind of don't even want to think about it. I mean, look, for example, um, Valverde was another person that they, they looked at when they were thinking about Marsh, although clearly he's um, he's tied up in work. But they, they, ruled, they ruled him out on the basis that he was too similar to Bielsa in that he, he had no real reason to be here, as it were, other than his own desire to be here yeah I think with whereas, Mar- whereas Marsh has got something to prove something to prove and also probably in his head you know minded to try and make some sort of project of this as opposed to just passing through for, for a job so I, I do understand that as far as the US, nas- the US men's national team goes Marsh does actually speak about that from time to time you know when he gets interviewed he does kind of touch on the fact that somewhere down the line he sees that as a job that might be for him or sees it as, a, as kind of two parties who might well come together um, but I think both he and Leeds will be hoping that it's a good while before that comes onto the agenda and also I would assume that in order to I, I know it's not as if there are you know the your top most elite coaches of the world are crawling all over the um, the USA job but you would think that in order to take that you'd have to have a good run behind you um, if it was to end early for him at Leeds in the way that it had at Leipzig it surely weakens your claim to that sort of position although I suppose you look at the England job and it's a job that you you'd probably struggle to give away to a top coach now. It's Well, it's kind of how we've ended up with Southgate doing it and we had Allardyce before because it was like, well, no one wants it. The, the Premier League is what it's all about for people now. Yeah, and club football. Club football. People spoke about Graham Potter, you know, saying he'd be he'd be a potential replacement for Southgate if and when Southgate went from the England job. But Potter had done so well at Brighton that you almost seem to be selling yourself short by saying, right, I'm now going to move into international football where I get to work with players once every three or four months and, you know, we get a handful of games through the years and uh, through each individual season and then a tournament every two years. You know, somebody like him wants to be in the thick of it, which is why he's gone to Chelsea. I did see a, uh, it was just one Twitter account, so you can't take it as uh, the temperature of anything else, but one uh, Potter Out account has already started. He's had one game. Inevitably. Inevitably. I, I'm quite pleased to see him tip up there. I thought Brighton became a completely different animal under him and uh, we saw them when we were down there a few weeks ago and incredibly well drilled and coached with, without a doubt how it's going to go for him at Chelsea I've, I've no idea because um, it doesn't always go well for people there but I think I, I think he'd put himself in a position for a big job and that kind of felt like the most likely one to come up Question for both of you here and I guess you could give this one to the listener as well if you're a seasoned Leeds fan Nick asks if you could have a newer American based Leeds fan relive three moments from Leeds United's history what moments would you pick and why? It's a good one, isn't it? Like, what what three moments, which three moments encapsulate Leeds United better than any? Do we have to have seen them ourselves? Um, no, it doesn't say I'm thinking that. Paris 75 would be an obvious, yeah. an obvious one. Because that's kind of baked in a lot of what happened in the 80s. And I was going to say, that's, that kind of it goes a long way to explain what happened after that. Yeah, <laughs> so that's a European Cup final, 1975 in Paris against Bayern Munich, who I referenced earlier, actually, who stole our trophy. Yes, um, I would suggest something better than that from the Riviera so you know what everybody's mm. talking about so I was going to say the 72 Cup final but actually you'd probably be better watching 
from start to finish the 7-0 against Southampton or something like that, wouldn't you? To, to understand not only why people still talk so much about that team, but why that era made Leeds a kind of global name and turned them from, you know, quite a sort of local parochial club into proper European force. Um, I think you would probably want to visit the Friday night when Leeds were promoted, get yourself outside Ellen Road and witness that. And I also think you should probably be subjected to the second leg of that playoff semi-final against Derby just to know what is coming from time to time. Mm, I mean, I still, I still haven't fully processed that. It's just a thing that it's, happened It's now. precisely my point, you see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That no matter how good it feels and no matter how great everything seems, that that sort of stuff always seems to be lurking. I think as well the um, the Champions League game against Deportivo one yeah, for, for, yeah. for Leeds at our... I, I guess a dick swinging would be the correct word for it I guess yeah, at that yeah, time yeah. we were like we were on the march and it felt like something was really happening it wasn't but for but for that moment it, we felt like we were potentially going to be like a, a major force in European football it is funny how the um, the I don't know not the underdog but the sense of injustice has been baked into our identity like we were talking about Paris 75 there but and we're talking about referees getting banned and inquiries into the performances of referees only two years before that, the same thing happened in 1973, didn't it? Yeah. Against AC Milan, Cup Winners' Cup in what was Salonica in Greece. Funnily enough, I flew in there. I'd never been to Greece before this summer. My holiday the other week was into Thessaloniki, as it's now called, Salonica. And I ended up looking for the stadium, um, on, on just on Google Maps or whatever, for mm. the stadium where it happened. But as I was passing through the town, I've been trying to have a nice time on my holidays, I felt like that it just reminded me that burning sense of injustice. Like, this is not fair. There's, there's something in this town that's happened that's not fair. And I want it to be corrected. And still to this day, it hasn't been. Yeah, see, you could almost say that Leeds were unlucky to have peaked in that sort of era when there was just so little proper scrutiny on these things. And, and you know, it, depending on who happened to be appointed for any game, um, you knew very little about them. You knew very little about the credentials or whether they were in any way suited or capable of, of handling games of that size. Those That was probably the point in time when you were most likely to get stung by either a poor or a really dodgy referee. But then you look at other British clubs, Celtic, Manchester United and others who won European trophies around about that time and you don't see the same thing happening. So, you know, I, I totally understand why th- that kind of sense of injustice is built up over the years. And you're right, it is part of the part of the psyche at least, definitely. I think it's not, you can't really define it down to one moment as well, but you should have to sit through a Bates era Tuesday night, 18,000 people in Ellen Road, none of them happy. <laughs> Probably a defeat. Just that just felt terminal through that period. It was like this is what we are stuck with forever, and it, the, the attendance will creep down by about a hundred people every week forever. It was sad, wasn't it? It was really such a, a dismal time to be a Leeds fan. But so. it's, it's built your resilience, and I, and I think actually, well, it feeds into this next question because Philip Picard asks, "How has the club's identity changed over the years that you've been covering the club?" So that is since two thousand and five ish, isn't it? That you yeah. uh, you came aboard the Watford playoff final was your first proper covering Leeds game, wasn't it? Uh, well, as um, as Juicy's sidekick, so I always say I started with Norwich at home, which was a steady one. Well, no, when I stay, say steady, they hit the post about three times and dominated the game. But um, David Healy penalty won that one. I, I was chatting to somebody because I'm, I'm thinking of doing a piece on the murals in Leeds. I was chatting to somebody about who'd been involved in painting one of them, and was saying that I think. Leeds United has so much more presence in its own city now and and it's not purely down to things like murals but that does make a difference you know it's very difficult to drive around Leeds now and not have you know not see images of Bielsa or players like Hernandez or Phillips who obviously both moved on now but you know really really striking um, depictions of them which kind of make you know that 
this is Leeds. When I first came to Leeds and when I first started um, covering them, you didn't really have that. You know, you didn't have much um, outside of the Ellen Road area. You didn't have much identity for them um, through the for the club, through the city. And I think that's that's totally changed. In terms of the supporters, I think they're the same as they've they've always been. Um, it's just that finally, as a result of the past three or four years, there's actually been something good to feed off. Yeah. Um, people often say to me, you know, did Leeds become everybody's second club during the BLC era? I don't think they did, but people started to, you know, really admire the football. I think more than anything, what it was, it wasn't that people here wanted them to be anybody else's second club. It was nice to have something that you realised that other supporters were envying mm. and to have something that other supporters and other clubs wanted. Um, and actually that some other clubs and other supporters were absolutely desperate for. I remember Newcastle prior to their takeover, you'd see a lot of Newcastle fans saying, I look at Leeds and I see the kind of, you know, engagement and passion and, and everything else that under Mike Ashley, they just didn't feel. Um, and nothing lasts forever and it, it didn't last forever. But that, I think, was that was the difference. On that, and one of the questions that's been sent in about the ownership and mistakes they've made, I think one of the big things they've they've got right is actually pulling things together. Because you go back to Ken Bates' programme notes from around that time when you first got on board with the job, Phil, and he was talking about Yorkshireman in his programme notes, you know, having, what was it, short arms and deep pockets, that kind of thing. And there was a real sense that the city, the business community in the city had fallen out with the football club and it kind of just... It filtered out in that way, didn't it? And it felt like you say Leeds was like a Leeds United was a, a little pocket, a little oasis of yeah. sport on the edge of the city. And now it feels like the whole city has embraced it. And you know, you see the volume of kits that we sell, and I see kids all over in Leeds kits now, and it really, you know, it lifts my heart because for years you'd be seeing kids in kits of other clubs. Well, I used to have the conversation whenever we were arguing or fighting with the club about season ticket prices, which obviously went up steeply on the base. I would speak to Sean Harvey about it, and he would say you know, the financial reasons behind this turning profit kind of year after year post-administration and, and blah, 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 Lovely blah. Lovely to see Sean um, in the Wrexham documentary, by the way. He did turn up in that, yeah. didn't he? Yeah, really pleasing people, to see him. A lot of people noted that. Yeah. Um, and he would say, you know, this is just our, our policy, it's our strategy, it's, our, it's the way we're doing things. And I used to say, but if you look at the crowds, the stadium's nowhere near full, you know, and the attendances have diminished and, you know, there's a dissatisfaction out there. And if this is your strategy but it's taking nobody with it, then what's the point? And doesn't it feel, you know, it, it, it's always very difficult in football to find the balance. But you this idea of you'd be better off selling tickets for a quid and, you know, filling the stadium. Great for the atmosphere, great for the individual game, but financially it's got to stack up. You know, you, the club's got to have enough cash coming through. But I still think there's a middle ground to find between charging enough and charging what you need, but making sure that people want to be there. You know, the... There was never really any fear of missing out during the, the Bates era, which developed massively from 2018 onwards, which is why you've got a season ticket waiting list of about 20,000 people because people want to get in the door. And the harder it becomes to get in the door, the more people want it. You know, the more people want to be able to find a way of getting a ticket, even though they, they basically don't exist. So that, again, that's something that has changed now is that it's it's properly magnetic. You know, it's it's become the place to be on match day. Whereas, you know, the many, many years where it seemed to me that people were going out of loyalty and, you know, habit yeah. more than anything, um, but not for any magic. I'd kind of forgotten that there was a benefit to having a season ticket in that you've got to go to every game, which is now uh, which is now a legitimate reason to have one. Whereas before <laughs> it was just like, I just couldn't be asked buying match by match tickets, but you could, you could buy one every game. You could turn up on the day and buy a ticket. Yeah. In any stand, I, I think that's Bielsa's biggest achievement. That he was the kind of massively, he was the glue that held it all together. I think he's the one who finally was the common cause that everybody 
got behind. And and I think we're, we're still trying to navigate our way through that after he's gone. We'll see how this season unfolds. But I think that's that's definitely his his biggest achievement, quite apart from amazing mm-hmm. football and getting us promoted and all that. But just have this this lasting sense of the club has exploded. Yeah, because the, of him. the demand for tickets has never been like it is now. No. In in Champions League, O'Leary era, you could still get tickets. The big games would obviously sell out, but it was relatively easy to get a ticket for like Southampton or someone at home. Like you wouldn't, you, there wouldn't be a massive scramble for that. Whereas now, even the you saw the Barnsley game selling out in no time at all. Like there used, I remember FA Cup games at Ellen Road where there'd be 30,000 people there for when we were good. When was the League Cup game where we got seven thousand? I remember I was, was there. That was Barnet. That was miserable. Wasn't God, it? I mean, that was Ian Ian Moore with the goals. Yeah. I remember that. I think, I think they were the only goals they ever scored for us, pretty much. What a time. Like, <laughs> like Michael says, you know, the, the the basic advantage of a season ticket is that you get your tickets for cheaper than if you're buying them individually. But I think the real advantage of it once the BLC era started was that you could get in the door. It guaranteed you getting in the door and getting a seat. No, you know, obviously, only so, so much any individual person can pay for a ticket. But away from actually saving the money, you could actually be there. You know, you could be in the ground. Whereas for people who didn't have one, it was. It became a real battle, and still is a real battle. I think we have to do several book fasts now. I think there was there was a lot of else mentions. Somebody should write a book. Um, which <laughs> manager in the league will be sacked next? Asks uh, Craig and Don. Um, Gerard must be. Oh, you've said that. Hey, we're playing Villa, Phil. Oh yeah, so we are. Yeah, they're so next. don't you've now they're jinxed next. it. Well done. Okay, yeah. Um, I, th- the thing is. Prior to this, I would have said Tuchel. I did think that was, you could tell that all was not well there. Um, I saw his body language after the game at Ellen Road, which was not encouraging at all. Um, so yeah, eradicate um, Gerard September two weeks ago and I'll say Tuchel. <laughs> Brendan Rodgers maybe? Yeah. It's not difficult, is it, to look at the table and see a number of people there who are going to be in trouble. I saw, Fra- Frank I, Lampard's struggling, but it's not his fault. Yeah, I sort of feel like it will... If it was to come Roger's way, it'll be a parting of ways. You know, it'll be a mutual consent thing. Something tells me that if it is as bad at Leicester as it seems to be, that there might be sort of enthusiasm on both sides. The Leicester model. The Leicester model. The Leicester model. Adam says, it's been said that you look like an adult Stewie Griffin. It has. Who do you think Leeds' best player is? He says, I'm sorry, Phil, it's a joke. Love you. (laughs) (laughs) Just got you to dig there. Two two sentences totally unconnected. (laughs) Who is Leeds' best player at the moment? Um... It could well turn out to be Aronson, I think. Yeah, I think there's a lot of talent there. Although beyond that, the one who I'm most interested to see where he is in 10 years' time is by a mile, Archie Gray. I think Melier's got to be up there as well, just for the for the sheer market value of him now. Probably it probably shows that he would be certainly up there. You're buying a bit of potential with him as well, but he's he's already very good. He's, he is looking, he's starting to look so accomplished this season. He really is. Final question then. Funny Chilino stories, question mark? Well, the story I always tell about Chilino, um, amongst many I could tell, is the one where he asked Adam Pope and I to go and interview him. I think during his first season as owner, it was before a, a night game. And he had been to Bahrain to see GFH because there were outstanding loans in the accounts. The meeting um, of the minds. Absolute meeting of the minds. Um, he had a very good trip, he told us, and he came back and they had, as he put it, they'd agreed to kind of waive the loans, which they definitely hadn't. And definitely didn't. Um, but he seemed to think that there was some agreement um, coming down the track, which was going to kind of free leads of this massive liability um, that GFH said they, they were owed. And because it had gone well, they'd given him an Arab headdress and a um, cloak. 
to go with it. So he, as we were sitting before this interview got started, he dressed up in this headdress and cloak and jumped about the room shouting, Allah Akbar, as you would. Um, and yeah, I can't say I've seen an owner do that before or since. Can you tell us the real funniest Chilino story as soon as we start recording this? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Excellent, Phil, thank you. Um, at the Phil Hayes Show, if you want to say hello. We'll do another Q&A. We've got plenty of uh, good, fun questions in. Quite a lot about violence, it will be. So you're going to say we've got, we've got plenty of time without a game. <laughs> <laughs> you'll end up doing another one next week. We'll just have to see how we get on my way. Do, do the overspill questions. Yeah, the, the amount of questions about fighting and violence is quite alarming, really. <laughs> but anyway... Uh, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod as well if you want to read The Athletic. Pound a month for six months. We'll speak to you next time. The Phil Hay Show.